Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 12. This is beyond a doubt one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You've heard me say now a few times that the book of Genesis has two parts. Chapters 1 to 11 tell us the story of God and the world. Chapters 12 to 50 tell us the story of God and the family of Abraham. So chapter 12 is a hinge in the book of Genesis. But more than that, it's a hinge or a turning point in the Bible as a whole. There are a few very important shifts in the Bible, and this is definitely one of them. In chapters 1 to 11, God is dealing with the world as a whole. In Genesis 12, he begins dealing with one particular family. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham put it this way, God intends to use Abram and his family as the instrument of rescuing and restoring his broken creation, close quote. So remember back to Genesis 3.15 to see how this all works. After the fall... God says to the devil in the hearing of our first parents, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring, her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, scholars call that the protevangelium, the first giving of the gospel. That is the gospel in seed form. In very few words, it contains the hope of the world. All we know in Genesis 3.15 is that God will intervene by means of a child born to a woman. He will take up our cause and he will defeat our enemy at some cost to himself. Matthew Henry says here that three things are promised. The birth of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and the triumph of Christ. That is the gospel in miniature. And then as the story of the Bible rolls on, more and more detail and specificity is added to that tiny little seed. And in Genesis chapter 12, we get our first major ad. God made that promise seemingly into the air in Genesis 3:15. But now, here we learn in Genesis chapter 12 that the promise is going to come through a particular race of people. That child who's going to be born, who's going to take up our cause and defeat our enemy at some cost to himself, he's going to be a child of Abraham, right? He's he's going to be a Jew. And, And the blessing that will undo the curse is going to come through this family and come ultimately through that child. This is the first major narrowing of the purpose and promise in the Bible. Now, if, if you were to sort of trace the storyline out on a piece of paper, it would kind of look like an hourglass lying on its side. The promise is very broad at the very beginning of the Bible. It, it's, it's wide. It's as wide as humanity in general. But, but then here in Genesis chapter 12 is our first narrow. Here, here it begins to narrow in. We know now that it's all going to come through one particular race, the people of Abraham. And then at the At the end of the book of Genesis, the promise narrows once again. We learn that the blessing will come through the tribe of Judah. So there's your second narrow. 
And then later in the Old Testament, we learn that it will come through a particular house in the tribe of Judah, the house of David. There's a further narrow. You can, you can see it getting narrower and narrower or, or more specific and more specific, if you like, as you read across the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the promise and purpose of God comes to a focus and a climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. There's where the promise and purpose of God is at its narrowest, right in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament has been working towards that narrow point. It's all been focused there right? This is the child, Jesus Christ. He's the child born of the woman who comes to take up our cross, to defeat our enemy at cost to himself, and to bring us home and return us to our original design and calling. Thanks be to God. That's the narrow point. But then from there, the promise and purpose of God widens out again to embrace people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. So it goes from broad to very, very narrow, Again, to very, very broad. That's the sideways hourglass shape of the biblical storyline. The story of God's redemptive purpose and promise in the world. From wide to narrow to Jesus to the Jews first and then out to all the people of the world. That's the shape of this story. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see the first significant shift, the first narrowing of the promise. Here we learn that God will undo the curse and bring back the blessing through the family and line of Abraham. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now we could talk for a long time about those four verses, but in a program like this, we've got to move fast. So let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, in Hebrew, there are just two commands, two imperatives in this paragraph. God tells Abram to go and to be a blessing. It is very hard to capture that in an English translation, but those are the two commands. And then those commands are supported by promises. In order to do what God tells him to do, God has to give him certain grace and help. And that's what I want you to see. God commands us to do impossible things all the time. Have you ever heard that phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? Okay, well, that's total garbage. God gives us more than we can handle all the time, but then he shows up with more grace than we could ever have asked for, hoped for, or imagined. That's what faith is, believing that God will give what he commands. Now, I also want you to notice that in some way, uh, we're, we're going to understand this better over time, but in some way, Abraham and his family and his work of bringing blessing into the world will function as some kind of divider within the human species. Those who 
respond positively to Abraham and to what God is doing through Abraham will be gathered back into blessing. Those who resist him and it will be pushed further out into curse and darkness. There's some kind of principle of blessing and curse operating inside Abraham. And then lastly, just notice the first couple of words in verse 4. It says, so Abram went. Faith is always about responding actively to the revealed word of God. God said, go. Abraham went. Okay, that is faith in a nutshell. Verse 5 says, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. We talked about how God enables that which he commands. Well, he's told Abraham to become a great nation. To state the obvious, if you want to become a nation, then you have to have a land. And God promises here that he will provide that land. He will give this land to the people of Abraham. Verse 7 goes on to say, So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now let's just stop here and notice something. Worship responds to what God says and what God gives. That's what worship is. It is response. When God reveals, when God speaks, when God gives, his people respond in worship. That's the rhythm of faith, right? In in the New Testament, in the church, the central ordinance of the church is communion. Its other name is the Eucharist, which means thank you. Worship is response to what God has said and what God has done, Old Testament and New. Verse 8 says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, this is a very interesting development. God didn't tell Abram to go to Egypt. He told him to go to Canaan. So why does Abram go to Egypt? Well, I suppose the obvious answer is because there was a famine in the land of Canaan. Things were hard at that time. It looked like God wasn't blessing at that time. So Abraham modified the plan. And that is generally when things start to go bad. The Bible is very honest here about the strengths and weaknesses of Abram. Abraham isn't Jesus. All right, that's important for us to understand. Abraham needs Jesus. Okay, Abraham is a sinner who is saved by grace through faith, just like you and me. So the Bible tells us the whole story here, the good parts, the bad parts, the victories, and the defeats, because we can learn from all of it. Verse 11 tells a story. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
Now, first of all, this is just bad husbandry, but some of us struggle with this story, right? Before we get to the point of it, some of us struggle with the details because we know that part of the Abraham miracle is that he has a child so late in his life. And, and so we think, how in the world could the beauty of Sarai be a problem when she's got to be in her 60s here for crying out loud? Well, remember where we are in the story of humanity. We're, we're at the point when the lifespans are contracting. They're shrinking back down to something similar to what we know now. But at this point in the story, they're still about twice what they are in our day and age. So Derek Kidner says here, Sarai's 60s would therefore presumably correspond with our 30s or 40s. And her 90 years at Isaac's birth with perhaps our late 50s. All right, so it's still a miracle when Sarah has a baby in her late 50s, to use our terms, but it's not a miracle that men found her attractive in her 30s or 40s, again, to use our terms. So don't trip up on that. The teaching point in this paragraph has to do with Abram's dishonesty. Now, technically speaking, he didn't lie per se. Sarah was his half-sister, right? They had the same father different mothers. Again, this is before the law, and this is early on in the human story, so there's nothing unusual about marrying a half-sister. The point for our purposes is that Abraham, having stepped outside of the commandment of God, feels that he must see to his own security by means of deception and deceit. And the lesson is that one sin will almost always lead to another. Once you stop obeying the word of God, you will find yourself on a very slippery slope leading into more and more deception, rebellion, and sin. Nobody ever commits one sin, okay? One sin always begets another. Verse 14 goes on to say, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, here we learn something very important. Even when Abraham sins, the promise and plan of God is still in effect. He carries inside him the seed of redemption. And therefore, how people respond to Abraham functions such that either blessings or curses are attracted to them. Now, by the way, this same principle remains in effect in the New Testament. Yes, all the promises of God land on Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, including this one, meaning that ultimately how people respond to Jesus Christ determines whether they experience blessings or curses for all eternity. But the principle of that is extended to us, to those of us who are in Christ. That's the meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats. The punchline of that parable is that how people respond to the least of these my brethren is taken as how they responded to 
Christ. There's a link there between Jesus and even the least of his people. And, and the outcome is very serious. The outcome is blessing or cursing. Listen very carefully. To those who did not bless the least of these, his brethren, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, hear that word, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But to those who did bless the least of these, his brethren, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Are you hearing that? Right? Cursing and blessing. Those are the stakes. Those have been the stakes since Genesis chapter 12. There is a principle of division unto blessing or cursing. That principle operates within the family of Abraham. That principle climaxes in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It continues to operate within the community of those who are called by his name and who preach his glorious gospel. Old Testament and New, this is life and death. This is blessing and cursing. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.